The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Today's sermon, as we are looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, is about John the Baptist. It's about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. The title of today's sermon, which is covering Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, listen carefully. Jesus encourages the Baptist. Jesus encourages the Baptist. I got that right from the text. Didn't make it up. Uh, This is a Baptist church uh, for a reason, because we think it's biblical. But Scripture calls John the Baptist several times, actually. All three of the Gospels call him the Baptist. That was a moniker that was assigned to him describing who he is by virtue of what he does. He was a baptizer, the baptizer, the most unique baptizer there ever was. So uh, what we're going to see in the passage today is Jesus encourages, he has some interaction with John from a distance, and his goal is to encourage John the Baptist. Let me read the passage that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, although the passage actually should be uh, Luke 7, 18 through 35. All those verses really talk about Jesus and what Jesus thinks of John the Baptist, his ministry, and John the Baptist as a person. We aren't going to be able to cover all that information, so we'll pick up the second part of this passage about John the Baptist next week. And today we're only going to deal with kind of the introductory and a specific incident that happened, verses 18 to 23. So listen to what happened. The last thing we left off last week in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus just did an amazing, unbelievable really unprecedented miracle in that he traveled several miles to a little unknown obscure town by divine appointment to attend a funeral. No, check that, to override a funeral as the special guest. He didn't go to give the eulogy. He went to the funeral as they were coming out of their city procession, and he went right up to that stretcher where the dead body was and told that dead young man to arise, get up off that stretcher, and he did. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people with Jesus when he did that following him. And he met up with a very large crowd who were in the funeral procession. And boy, they must have had quite a celebration. And Jesus literally raised this young man from the dead by a word on the spot. And there were hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of eyewitnesses who just saw this. They are excited. So they have great expectations about Jesus, the Messiah, the king, and in their limited understanding of what that meant. Or maybe just Jesus is just a great prophet, like Elijah. That's probably what most of them thought, because that's what they said. But they had great expectations. And so it's with that background, this amazing incident that just happened, in that crowd, by the way, that saw this miracle, were some of the disciples of John the Baptist. Many of the disciples of John the Baptist, many who followed John the Baptist, For those six months, began to follow Jesus when he began his ministry. Why? Because John the Baptist told them to. Okay, you're following me. I'm temporary. I'm preparatory. I'm here for a purpose. I'm here for one purpose, and that is to point you to the Lamb of God. He's over there. His name is Jesus. And many of the disciples of John the Baptist submitted and obeyed, and they immediately began to affiliate with Jesus. One of those disciples of John the Baptist was Andrew, Peter's brother, who became one of the 12 apostles. He was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. And in obedience, 
he began to follow Jesus. So in that crowd where that incredible miracle happened of the young man being raised from the dead were disciples of John the Baptist. They end up in this story right here that we're going to read today. So let's read it, uh, verses 18 to 23. Right after this miracle, the disciples of John the Baptist reported to Jesus about all these things. The disciples of John the Baptist reported to, I'm sorry, the, the disciples of John the Baptist reported to John about all these things. So the disciples of John the Baptist gave John the Baptist a report uh, that Jesus was doing miracles. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was healing people who were lame. So summoning, verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord. So John sent two of his disciples to the Lord Jesus saying, are you the expected one or are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? Now keep in mind the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 11 tells us that when John's disciples went to talk to John the Baptist and when John the Baptist asked this question about Jesus, who is Jesus? Is he really the coming one? Is he the Messiah? John the Baptist was in prison at the time. He had been arrested. He was probably in a dungeon in an obscure palace, castle, that was rebuilt by Herod the Great prior to the birth of Christ. It was over by the east side, out of the way, on the shore of the Dead Sea, at the mouth of the Jordan River, over in an area called Perea. And it was one of the many palaces that belonged to the Herods. And the Herod that was alive at the time of Christ and John the Baptist, when they were doing their ministry, that was one of his getaway palaces. But it also had a dungeon where they would confine prisoners and their enemies. And so that's where John the Baptist was. He was in prison. Probably don't remember, but long ago we preached on Luke 3 and saw that John the Baptist, as he began his ministry, he was preaching for months and months and months, and then he was, he was bold and courageous, and he offended Herod, the Tetrarch, who was the son of Herod the Great, ruling at the time. And then Herod, the Tetrarch, had John the Baptist arrested, locked away in this palace dungeon. Literally, it says he was bound, probably with chains, isolated away, in a dungeon, deprived, neglected, maybe even partially starved. And he'd been there in this prison for many months now, for the most part with no freedom all by himself. For the last several months, not observing the ministry of Jesus. Think about that. John the Baptist had one purpose in life. He was predicted in the Old Testament 700 years before he was born by Isaiah the prophet. God predicted there will be a one who comes to prepare the way of the Messiah. He'll be a voice crying in the wilderness, make way, make straight the way of the Lord. That was John the Baptist. He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before Christ. And then in Malachi as well, made a prophecy around 500 B.C., of the second one who would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. So he fulfilled two Old Testament prophecies specifically. And then when the time came for him to be born, that's when God did that miracle with his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were descendants in the priestly line. They were very old. They never had children Elizabeth couldn't have children. She was advanced in age. She was past bearing years. 
And God intervened and did a miracle like he did with Abraham and Sarah and allowed Elizabeth to become pregnant with John the Baptist in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. We already read that. Another amazing miracle by God to fulfill His Word. That, and then an angel announced this to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not only that, the angel told them what to name him. His name shall be John. So John the Baptist was born, and it says in the Gospel of Luke that we read earlier, this amazing statement, that John the Baptist was, fulfilled, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That statement is made about no one else in the history of humanity. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. The implications of that are astounding. He's a human in the womb. He is sacred in the womb. He's the life of God in the womb. He has a special setting apart by God while he is in the womb. And he's filled with the Spirit in the womb. So throughout John's entire life, he was filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, lived in obedience to the Spirit, trusted in the Spirit. He had to because his parents were advanced in age. Could very well be when he was a young man. Depending upon his parents, his parents probably died. He had no siblings. He leaned on the Holy Spirit. So we'll learn a little bit more about John the Baptist. But from the very womb, God made it clear that he set apart John the Baptist from the womb for a very special purpose. As a matter of fact, we read earlier in Luke that God determined that, that John would take on the Nazarite vow while in the womb. That's from Numbers chapter 6. That never happened in the history of the world either. A Nazarite vow typically was only done with those who were of age and conscious of the decisions they were making. And God said, no, I'm going to do it for you. So he was to abstain from alcohol his entire life, a way to make himself tangibly set apart from others for a very special task. Scripture says that he went on to live in the wilderness. In the wilderness, not the desert. It was the wilderness, the wild place, literally a deserted place. All that means is where people didn't live. It was an obscure getaway, and it was between uh, Jerusalem and the Jordan River, probably somewhere near the Dead Sea in the area of Bethany on the east side of the Jordan River, which is where John the Baptist did his ministry. And even today, you go up there, and there's mountainous range, and there's wild areas, and there's rocks and stones. There are living creatures there where you could sustain yourself. But he also had God providing for himself. For It could have been years that John the Baptist was living out there in the wilderness, away from people, focusing on God, being led by the Spirit, studying his scriptures. He may have been raised in the synagogue as a young man, probably so. Learned the scriptures, learned the prophets, learned about Isaiah, who he would emulate, learned about Malachi, whom he would fulfill. He had the scriptures on the tip of his tongue, memorized in his mind, committed one cause. They told me when I was born what my cause was. They told me I was born of a miraculous nature from my aged mother. They told me that I was set apart by God from the womb. They, were, they told me that I've been fulfilled or filled with the Spirit from the womb. They communicated to me that I am a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that I am to set apart 
a way that prepares the way of the coming Messiah. And for 30 years, John lived in obscurity, knowing some of this, not talking to anybody, not preaching anywhere, not teaching on it, doing no miracles whatsoever, because John the Baptist never did a miracle in his life. So he has this amazing birth, and then we don't hear anything for 30 years. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, John the Baptist bursts on the scene like no prophet in the history of the world. And we saw that in John chapter 3. That is John the Baptist. Look at John chapter or Luke chapter 3, sorry. Just a quick reminder, as he burst on the scene, 30 years old, Jesus hasn't begun his ministry. Jesus hasn't been unveiled as the Messiah. Nobody knows anything about Jesus when John the Baptist began his ministry. There's been 400 years of silence and no prophets and no divine revelation. No miracles, no voice from God for the chosen people for four centuries. And all of a sudden, here comes John. Out of nowhere. He wasn't trained in the schools of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. That's why they didn't like him. You know who he was. Luke 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is about 25, 26 A.D., we know that, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod the Tetrarch, son of King Herod. King Herod had a whole bunch of sons named Herod. Why? Because he was arrogant and loved himself. This was one of the Herods. Herod, who ruled over the fourth. He ruled over Galilee and Perea, a fourth of the land that... The great ruled over. So John was alive and ministering at age 30 when in the area of Galilee, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee was in control of that area. He was a petty ruler, petty king. And his brother Herod Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was the Tetrarch of Abilene. And in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So God spoke to John the Baptist directly through the Holy Spirit, also through Scripture. Verse 3, and, and then called him, okay, John, it's time. I've been preparing you for 30 years. You know that you were filled with the Spirit from the time you were born. You know you had came from a supernatural birth, and you know your mission, and it is now. Verse 3, and John came into the district around the Jordan River, the near, near Bethany, which is on the northern side of the Dead Sea, maybe 20 to 30 miles east of Jerusalem, what was he doing? He had a one-track, single-minded focus ministry. It was preaching and baptism. Preaching and baptism. It was a very simple message, very narrow message. Preaching a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. So it was a spiritual message. It was a spiritual message rooted in the Old Testament. It came out of the Old Testament. It was all to be fulfilled by the coming Messiah, really in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But in order to be right with the Messiah, you had to repent of your sins. You had to acknowledge your sinfulness. John knew that. That's a theme in his message, preaching repentance. What does repentance mean? It means to turn. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, and do it again. I'm sorry, and do it again. I'm sorry, and do it. That's not repentance. Repentance, first and foremost, means turn, forsake. Stop doing it. And there needs to be fruit that proves it. 
So that's what he was preaching. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, just as it is written in the book of Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And listen to the message, the nature of John's message. It's very limited in emphasis and focus. It's all true because it's all from the Old Testament. Make his paths straight. Get ready. Be prepared. The Messiah's coming to establish his kingdom is imminent. It is now. Every ravine will be filled. And every mountain and hill will be brought low. This is out of the Old Testament. You know what that is? That's the, the curse on the earth will be undone. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed Adam and Eve. God cursed the snake and the serpent and Satan. God also cursed planet earth. Now it used to be perfect, now you have weeds. The weather used to be perfect, now you have tornadoes, floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, death. That's from the curse. And here, John the Baptist, part of his message is when the Messiah comes, God will take up the curse off of planet Earth, literally and physically. And this is what he's shouting at the top of his lungs. When the Messiah comes, he'll provide an opportunity for forgiveness of sin, but he's also going to affect all of creation. He, at some point, he's going to lift the curse off of the Earth and replenish Earth. The rough, mount, uh, the rough roads will be made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. It's going to be universal. Now, the problem is when you read that, think about, wait a minute. Jesus came, ministered for three and a half years, and most of what John just said was going to happen actually didn't happen. Jesus didn't come and restore planet Earth. He didn't get rid of global warming or climate change. Didn't change it one iota. And definitely, verse 6 didn't happen, where it says, Every human being or all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. His ministry was not universal. His ministry was located only in the land of Israel, a very small part of the world. What's going on here? Verse 7, so John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, crowds. Uh, another verse says that as the word about John the Baptist got out, all of Israel was coming out to be baptized, first to listen to this crazy guy. We heard about, I heard about him like 30 years ago. I mean, is that guy still around? I didn't see him in my synagogue. Where did he, whoa, where did he come from? So he had a reputation even before he started preaching. Then when he's preaching publicly, his reputation ramped up all the more. He looks kind of crazy. He's living out in the wilderness. His clothes are camel's hair and a leather belt. He has a weird diet. He's eating locusts. That is disgusting. <laughs> High in nutrition. Locusts. That boy, you want to put some honey on that. Well, he did. <laughs> Locust and wild honey. Then he starts preaching, and his message is right here. His message is startling. It is gloomy. It is offensive. It is apocalyptic. It is mysterious. It's intriguing. So he begins to amass a crowd. He's not intentionally trying to amass a crowd. You know, the, the crowds are gathering just by virtue of who he is, a unique man of God, called by God, set apart by God, but also the content of his preaching and the quality of the integrity of his character. People couldn't help but want to see this new prophet, John the Baptist. So literally, 
thousands upon thousands, if not tens of thousands of people had come to hear John the Baptist. No microphone, no promo on the internet, but a faithful ministry for maybe up to six months doing one thing, preaching this convicting message and calling people to repent and be baptized, be washed, be cleansed. Maybe in fulfillment of that book that he knew, Isaiah, the prophet 700 B.C. Maybe from Isaiah chapter 1. There was not Old Testament baptism. There was the washing of hands and that kind of stuff. There was no baptism, baptizo, to be dunked, to be totally immersed in the water. That's what John the Baptist did, and he did it in the Jordan River. He didn't sprinkle people on the head. What he was doing was a new thing. But Isaiah chapter 1, 16 and following maybe gives possibly an illusion to what his ministry would be, and that was he's calling people to repentance, to be clean, to be washed with water. That's what he did. Dunking them in the water didn't do anything. That didn't forgive anybody's sins. Dunking them in the water was just simply an outward living metaphor of a, a sign showing that this person is committed to asking God for forgiveness for their sin. And they want to be cleansed spiritually on the inside. And the outward water was simply a symbol of that. This is not legalism. This is not ritualism. It is strictly a symbol. And so that was his ministry. To these massive crowds, verse 7, who were going out to be baptized by him, Listen to one of the things that he would say. You brood of vipers, you snakes! Publicly, up on the hill, crowds of people, broad daylight, points his finger and starts calling certain people snakes. You vipers, you snakes, you hypocrites, you compromisers. Who was he? he was reserving that harsh language mostly for the Jewish leaders in that area. That would be the Sadducees. Herod the Tetrarch was one of those. The religious aristocracy, they had all the power. Viper, snake, hypocrite. A Sadducee was a Jewish leader, a Jewish religious leader. Supposedly masters of the Old Testament and the authority over the temple and the rituals and the sacrifices. Representing God for the people. Hypocrite. The Sadducees were vipers and snakes. The elders, they were religious leaders as well. The scribes, these are all by name of who John's talking about. And the worst of all, the Pharisees, the pure ones, the ones who had control over all the people, who intimidated them, had all the rules, ran the synagogues, ran Jewish religion, called the shots, made up a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme council of Judaism, and John points his finger at their face and says, you hypocrites. That's why not, not one Pharisee ever submitted to John's baptism and got baptized by John. You brood of vipers. How long can you preach that message and not cause a problem? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repent. You really repentant? Then we want to see it in your life. There needs to be fruits that show you are truly repentant and changed by God. If there's no fruit, you're a hypocrite. You're a liar. It's superficial. It's shallow. It's not real. Fake religion. That's what it means. And did not begin to say. To, oh, and did not begin to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham for our father." We're, we are. We're going. God loves us because we're Jews. That's what that means. By virtue of my birth, by who my family. No. 
God likes me because I go to church. No. God likes me because I do religious rituals. No. That's what he's saying. Verse 9. One thing you can say about John's message, it was a, it was a message about judgment. Because look at verse 9. John said, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. God is coming. The Messiah is coming with an axe of judgment, and he's going to start chopping down phony, hypocritical trees. And it's to the death. That's what it means. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the foot of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, into the eternal fire, into eternal hell. Now, this is John's message about the Messiah when he comes. He's echoing what the ministry and the message of the Messiah would be. But when Jesus came six months later and Jesus preached for three years, this, this didn't happen. A lot of this, most of this didn't happen. Jesus didn't come and kill everybody and throw them into hell. As a matter of fact, John chapter 3 says, after John 3, 16 and following, it says, the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world. He came to save the world. So is John wrong? No. John's just quoting Scripture from the Old Testament. Jesus will fulfill that yet in the future. The one thing John didn't know was the timing of these events. John is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sin from a gracious God. That's true. And, and John the Baptist is also preaching judgment from a holy God, and even physically on the earth. That is also true, but that hasn't happened yet. That awaits the future. What, the one thing John did not understand as he's preaching all this, which is true, John didn't understand the timing of these events. He didn't know that 2,000 years plus would separate one ministry of Jesus as the suffering servant and son of man, and his ministry at the end of the age as the Son of God and judge of the earth. And then all those prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, they wouldn't be fulfilled all at one time in one king, uh, coming of Jesus the Messiah. So John wasn't aware of that. He didn't know that. God didn't reveal that to him. What he's saying is true. It is binding. Everything here will be fulfilled ultimately by Jesus, the spiritual invisible components, forgiveness of sin, and also the renovation of planet earth, the judgment of all unbelievers, and all those promises being fulfilled in the millennium and beyond into eternity. That all will happen. But John was ignorant about the timing of its implementation. And so were all the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah wrote all these prophecies. A Messiah is coming. He'll be a gracious Savior. He will forgive anyone who cries out to Him. He is so merciful. He'll do that by a substitutionary death. He said in Isaiah 53, and at the same time, Isaiah is also preaching the Messiah will come as judge with the sword to crush and kill his enemies and cast them into eternal hell forever, says Isaiah 65 and 66. So John, uh, Isaiah had the same problem. He didn't know the timing of the Messiah. He didn't know about two comings of a Messiah. He just thought it all happens at the same time. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the coming of the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets were searching and confused and trying to figure out, boy, who is the person that's going to fulfill these messianic prophecies and when is this all going to happen? They didn't know that. So that's the problem for John. That's his limitedness. He's limited in his understanding. Anyway, verse 10, and the crowd, so John keeps preaching, and the crowds were questioning John the Baptist, saying, then what shall we do? So they were convicted, they were fearful. What can I do to uh, be freed from the coming imminent wrath of this Messiah who will cast me into hell? And John gave them some answers. Basically, it's repent. 
Admit your sin and turn from it. Lean on God. That's a never-changing message. Verse 15. Now, while the people were in the state of expectation, hearing John the Baptist, and they were all wondering in their hearts about John, boy, could he be the Messiah? Maybe John's the Messiah. No one has ever preached like this. With this courage, with this authority, with this lack of fear of men, they've never seen it in their life. So they didn't know who John the Baptist was, and some of them were thinking he's actually the Messiah. Several people continued to ask John that for six months. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And he kept saying, no, I'm not. Not only am I not the Messiah, I'm the one that came to prepare the way of the Messiah. And not only am I not the Messiah, I am so pathetic and lowly compared to the great sinless Messiah, that I'm not even worthy to be associated with the ministry of the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to tie his filthy, dirty sandal. John was a humble man. He knew what his ministry was. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, wondering if John the Baptist was the Christ, John answered and said to all of them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming, literally the coming one. Right out of Daniel chapter 7, right out of Isaiah uh, as well, and also Zechariah, the book of Zechariah chapter 14, Psalm chapter 40, Psalm 117, Psalm 118, predicted that a Messiah would come and make all things right. And he was called the coming one. So John literally calls the Messiah the coming one. You know what that means? If you think about the terminology there, the coming, that means he's already on his way. He is in He is at the starting block. He's just waiting for the whistle. That's what the coming one means. That was a technical term of the Messiah. That is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 19. The coming one, the Messiah, he's mightier than I am. I'm not fit to untie the throng of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's salvation, spiritual salvation. And with fire, I believe that is judgment. So, with many other exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. Repent, believe, you shall be saved. That is good news. You don't have to do anything. You can't earn your salvation. It is by grace, through faith, in the work of God, through the work of the Messiah. That's how you get saved. That is the good news. Did this for six months. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, John the Baptist... So he didn't just do it generically. All you Pharisees out there, you're a bunch of vipers. You need to repent. He got personal. And Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled over the area of Galilee, who was the son of Herod, was supposed to be a Jewish holy man, and yet he was a complete sexual pervert. Grossly immoral. Compromiser. Lived a life of absolute sin, abusing his power and everything else. John the Baptist called him out on that. When Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded, literally, not reprimanded, rebuked, that's the word. Not rep rebuked, called out. So, uh, Herod the, so here's a, the highest political official locally you could possibly imagine. All of his prestige, all of his power, snaps his fingers, gets what he wants. John the Baptist has nothing. Camels, hair, and locusts. And calls Herod the king out for his compromised life, rebuked him because of Herodias. Who was she? Well, it was his brother's wife. 
what happened? Well, Herodias, that's a girl. She's married to Herod Philip. So that would be this Herod's brother. So this is his sister-in-law. So he had an affair, an adulterous affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias. It just so happens that Herodias was also his niece. So he's committing the sin of incest, which is forbidden by Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 20, a violation of the Mosaic law. And here Herod the Tetrarch is supposed to be a Sadducee upholding and promulgating the law of Moses. He's violating it all over the place. Multiple acts of incest, multiple acts of adultery, multiple acts of divorce that he's creating. This isn't the only sin he got called out on, but this is one of them reprimanded uh, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things that he had been doing. Called out. Well, he tolerated this for a while, probably several months. But his wife, actually she wasn't his wife, his paramour, his uh, adulterous association. The woman, she was like Jezebel. You can't let John keep saying this. You need to do something. You can't ignore him. You need to shut him up. He's mocking your reputation. People are beginning to talk about you. What are you doing? We're going to lose everything. Do something about him. That's literally what happened. So Herod was tolerating it. One verse tells us that Herod actually enjoyed, he was entertained by listening to John the Baptist. He's like a freak from the circus. He enjoyed it. He was just letting it, letting it ride. And then she got to him. Nope, you can't allow it. So he didn't. And because of all the wicked things he had done, and then Herod also added this to all of them and finally reached the tipping point. And Herod, who had no courage, who had no guts, was basically coerced out of fear because of two women in his life, evil, wicked women, he locked John up, the man of God. He locked John the Baptist up. He locked a prophet of God up to shut him down, to shut him up. John the Baptist, not just a prophet of God, but the greatest human being in the history of the world. How do I know that? Because Luke chapter 7 says so. Let's go back to Luke chapter 7. Jesus starts talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, and Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of women. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that John the Baptist was sinless, even though he was Filled with the Holy Spirit, he was not sinless. He was a sinner. He was a pathetic sinner. He was a sinner who deserved eternal death and judgment from God. And he knew that because he had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament said, the soul that sins, it shall die, said Ezekiel 18. And John the Baptist, he probably loved the prophets because he quotes from them. He knew Genesis chapter 2, and the day that you eat, the day that you sin, you shall die. So he knew he was a sinner, John the Baptist. So going back to, uh, let's go back to Luke chapter 7. And with that background about John the Baptist, just I want to walk through this passage now. And I've given a lot of foundation so we can walk through it probably pretty quickly. But going back to the title is Jesus encourages John the Baptist. John the Baptist needed encouragement because he was thrown into prison and he'd been in there for months and months and months and he was isolated. And the other gospel tells us that he was bound in that prison probably had very few privileges. Occasionally, apparently, he was allowed a visitor because that's how John the Baptist, two of his disciples, were able to come and see him. And again, he hadn't seen the ministry of Jesus Christ. He baptized Jesus, and that was pretty much the end of John the Baptist's ministry because it wasn't long after that. He got arrested. And he knew his mission, mission accomplished. I baptized 
the Messiah. He must increase, I must decrease. And he did decrease. He ended up getting arrested, and now he's confined in jail. Months and months and months are going by. He remembered that Jesus probably preached in one of his first sermons was in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Jesus went into the temple and opened up the scroll of Isaiah, and he quoted from Isaiah 61. And then he closed the scroll and he said, this scripture has been fulfilled this day in your hearing. And you know what that passage said in Isaiah 61? One of the promises that the Messiah would come and he would heal. Yes, he would heal people. He would also preach the good news, but it also said that the Messiah would come and he would set the captives free. Literally, he would set the slaves and prisoners free. Those Jews, God's people who were in bondage to the oppressor, literally in chains, would be set free by the Messiah. John the Baptist heard that probably from Jesus and his teaching. And John the Baptist definitely knew about it from Isaiah 61. This is what the Messiah will do. He will come. He will judge. He will set prisoners free. John the Baptist has been in a prison for month after month after month, totally deprived, totally isolated, maybe even on the point of death for all we know, not seeing anybody, no fellowship, no companionship, no scriptures to access, drying up as a human being, hasn't seen a miracle of Christ and all maybe reverberating in his brain. Wait a minute. Jesus, the Messiah, my one job in life was to prepare the way of the Messiah. And he would come and he would bring justice to this world in a very specific level to the Jews, the people of God, the apple of their eye. I am one of those Jews. I'm a prophet of God. I'm a representative of Yahweh. And here I am in chains, in prison. And I haven't been set free. What is Jesus doing? He didn't know because he didn't see the ministry of Christ. So in God's good grace, in God's providence, by chance, God allowed two disciples of John the Baptist to see a miracle of Jesus firsthand raising somebody from the dead and thereafter, very soon, allowed to go visit John the Baptist and tell John the Baptist. Maybe through the bars as he's in his chains, surrounded by a guard of professional armed soldiers. John, you're never going to believe what we saw. Jesus, he's doing his ministry just as he said. He's preaching the good news. Yes, he's offering forgiveness of sin, but he's doing miracles. He's raising the dead. We just saw him raise the dead of a young man at a funeral. So John's hearing this, and John doesn't say, oh, great, that's wonderful. Amen. That put to rest all of my doubts and fears. That isn't how John responded. How did he respond? Right here. Verses 18 to 20. Let's look at it. On the doubt, the doubts that John the Baptist had is first the problem. The problem was he had doubts. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, these miracles that Jesus was doing, summoning two of his disciples. John sent the disciples back when they heard about all that Jesus was doing. And he still had a question. Oh, okay, you're telling me Jesus did miracles? Um... I'm still struggling here. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling to believe. It's a good definition of doubt, by the way. This whole passage is about doubt. And how God deals with doubt. Not with the doubt of an unbeliever. The doubt of a believer. Did you doubt this week? I did. Do all Christians doubt at some point in their life? The greatest men and women of the Bible all doubted. Abraham doubted as a man of God. He's the father of faith. He's the exemplar of how to believe in God. He doubted. He doubted. God gave him direct revelation. You're going to have an offspring 
through your wife, Sarah, and become the father of a multitude of nations. The Messiah will come from your loins. He celebrated temporarily. A few years goes by and it's not happening. Oop. Doubted. Doubted a direct promise he heard from God, took matters into his own hands, and tries to have an offspring with Hagar, his mistress, committing adultery, violating the command of God, not trusting God, he doubted. Abraham. And there were severe consequences for that doubt. Because Ishmael was born, and he became in his descendants enemies of the Jews throughout history, even to this day. Huge, massive cataclysmic consequences for doubting God. Eve doubted God because of Satan, twisting, misquoting God's word, putting seeds of doubt in her mind, attacking the mind. That's what doubt is. Doubt is an attack on the mind. The doubt is an attack on how you think and how I think. And Satan will attack your thinking. He'll attack it with lies, half-truths. Those are more effective. Wrong information, lack of patience. There's all kinds of things that contribute to us doubting and twist our thinking, play with our thinking. For John the Baptist, there was no more bold, courageous, confident, committed preacher of God's Word in the history of the world. You can just imagine him up there in front of those crowds just preaching hour after hour, day after day, month after month, and then all of a sudden he gets confined, he gets isolated for months on end, totally deprived, and all of a sudden doubt begins to creep in. That's a good warning and sign for us. Why do we doubt? Well, we doubt for the same reason that John the Baptist doubted, why he became vulnerable to doubt. Those are key. Isolation, being isolated. If you isolate yourself, you will be prone to, vulnerable, susceptible to doubt, to doubting God's word, to doubting God's promises, to start questioning him, to believing lies, isolation. The pastors here and the elders of this church, we have seen this time and time again after over a year of this pandemic where believers have isolated themselves from the rest of the body of Christ. And we've seen the toll that it's taken on their life and their thinking creating depression and doubt at the most fundamental level. That was happening with John the Baptist, totally isolated. God made every single one of us in his image. God is by nature and for eternity a social being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons forever and eternally with perfect interaction, fellowship, and communion with one another. God made humanity in his image, man and woman, and a social entity. That's who we are at root as people. We cannot be isolated. That's why in the very beginning, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. You know what that means? It is not good for any woman to be alone. It is not good for any human being ever to be alone for a long period of time. You're created as a social being. God created you for community, for fellowship, for interaction, for interdependence with your fellow human beings. When you are isolated, that is dangerous. You are vulnerable. That happened to John the Baptist. That happens to us. We cannot allow to do it. God's solution to that is the community, the family of the body of Christ. When one member hurts, we all suffer, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. We have got to be attached to regularly, vibrantly, immediately the body of Christ, interacting, interfacing with people. So John was isolated. His IV lifeline was cut off from the community of God's people. And he began to dry up. And that's when Satan goes in. 
and our sinfulness creeps in and we start thinking wrong things and we rehearse it and meditate on it and it compounds more and more and we literally become deceived to the point to the worst point possible where John the Baptist who had one mission in life to say Jesus is the Messiah now in a jail cell questioning is Jesus the Messiah he just preached it for 6 months he just got arrested for it he's going to die for it that can happen to us do Christians doubt? Yes. Do strong Christians doubt? Yes. Does God want us to keep doubting? No. Is it good to doubt? No. We're going to see that in Jesus' solution here. Another thing that creates doubt is isolation and then wrong expectations. We saw that in, in his preaching. Here's John's message. He's quoting yeah, the save, Messiah is going to come. He's going to save people if you return. But he's also going to judge you and throw you into hell if you don't. And John's thinking, and that's going to happen right now. No, John. And God's going to re- Jesus is going to remove the curse at his first coming. No, John. And it's going to be paradise on earth right now. No, John. And he's going to set, and anybody that is a Jew that is imprisoned by the Romans in chains will be set free immediately. No, John. What did John have? Wrong expectations. He was wrong about the coming of the Messiah in terms of implementing his plan. The timing, he was off. We do that all the time, right? It's called the lack of patience on our part. Dear God, make this happen. In your name, amen. Oops, wait. I forgot to say right now. Or maybe you did say right now, and it's been a year, and it hasn't happened. That's walking by faith. That's trusting God. We can't demand it. We don't know the timing. That's God's prerogative. That's huge. Do not isolate yourself. You'll be prone to doubting. And everything else that goes with that, of attacks on the mind, depression, anxiety, fear, all of it. You, you can, another major thing that happens in isolation, you totally lose perspective of reality. Do not isolate yourself. And then also don't have wrong expectations. What does that mean? You're thinking wrong about biblical truth. You've got to take your thinking and put it through the grid of the Bible. Oh, I was off there. Oh, I messed up. Oh, my timing is off. Oh, I've got wrong expectations. Oh, I want God to do it now, but God doesn't want to do it now because he doesn't have to do it now because he's got a better plan later. So that's what John's problem was. That is what our problem is. So that was the problem. So he literally says, go ask Jesus if he is the coming one, if he is the Messiah that I have been preaching for six months. Because I I don't know. Should we look for somebody else? Is somebody else the Messiah? So verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or should John the Baptist and us look for somebody else? That had to be shocking to Jesus. Jesus didn't always know everything omnisciently in his flesh. He knew only what the Father would reveal at any given moment. You wonder to see what he knew at that time when John said that. Maybe it came as a surprise. But here's his answer. Verses 21 to 22. How does Jesus deal with the doubt of a a believer? Man, this is so practical. Because it applies to us. 
And also, if you're a Christian and you're counseling another fellow believer and they're struggling with doubt, you can follow uh, Jesus' model of how to counsel them and encourage them. Here's what he does. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus had cured many more people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. So here's Jesus, just day to day, all day long. He'd do a miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Did you see that miracle after miracle after miracle? John's disciples are there, and then two, two of them come up and say, Jesus, are you, are you really the Messiah? Wait, let me, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. What? Well, John wants to know if you're really the Messiah or if we should be looking for somebody else. Well, Jesus has an answer. It's from God the Father. It's an omniscient answer. It's the perfect answer. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John, two witnesses, therefore validating truth in light of the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 19. You can count on it. Go and report to John. This is a formal report. What you have seen, you are eyewitness. What you have seen and heard from me doing these acts as the Messiah, fulfilling Scripture. And then he quotes from Scripture from the book of Isaiah. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Period. There's your answer. No commentary. That's how Jesus dealt with the doubt of one of the greatest believers of all time who was questioning who Jesus was. Practical principles. How did Jesus respond to John? How did Jesus deal with John's doubt? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't give John the Baptist a bunch of psychobabble. He didn't, which is what we're prone to do today. It's part of our culture and all that goes with it. Uh, Jesus didn't conclude that uh, John's problem was medical or physiological or biological or hormonal. In other words, he didn't say, here, take a pill. There are medical problems, but this wasn't it. That was not the main problem with John, doubting, spiritual doubts. He didn't just say, uh, John, just pray harder and have more faith and God will set you free and let you out of prison. So the prosperity gospel wasn't given to him. He didn't give him false sympathy or false promises. He didn't say, well, I do miracles, I'll come get you. He left John in there to rot. He left John in there to die. He didn't give him false hope. He also, this is key, Jesus did not embrace John's wrong thinking. When Jesus heard what John was thinking, he's like, that is wrong. That is not true. I am not going to endorse that. I'm not going to concede to that. I'm not going to say, well, John, yeah, you know, I can see why you think that. That's understandable. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said just the opposite. What did he do? Well, he corrected his thinking. That's the most important thing. What did Jesus do? When, when a believer is doubting at a spiritual level, not doubting at a human level, some, you know, some things are okay to doubt, like your trust in the government. <laughs> and I could list many other things. I would, I would say in the ultimate scheme of things, don't trust another person. The Bible says that. Anybody ever come to you and say, just trust me, just trust me. It's like, I'm not trusting you. So there are things we should doubt, but when it comes to God, His truths, His promises that He has clearly revealed in His Word, we cannot be allowed to doubt those things, and we can't allow other believers to doubt them if we hear about it. We need to counsel like Jesus did. We need to counter with the wrong thinking. That is the problem. John was thinking wrong. So Jesus gave him 
In exchange for wrong thinking, Jesus simply just gave him the unadulterated, pure, simple, understandable truth right out of the Bible. This is, he is quoting scripture from Isaiah. You know, John, you like to preach uh, Isaiah 61 and all those judgment passages. But oh, by the way, there's other passages in Isaiah too. There's Isaiah 35. About showing mercy and being patient, being gracious and preaching the gospel and waiting on God. Those are in Isaiah too. So those are some of the ones that Jesus quotes for him. So what is a person, a believer who is in doubt, need most? They need the truth. A believer who is in doubt about the promises of God, they need the truth. They need to change their thinking. It needs to be in accord with Scripture. Very specific. That's why I believe the Bible is sufficient. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. There is not a problem. There is not a spiritual doubt that you have that the Bible doesn't have an answer to. That's why when I doubt, and I doubt all the time, is this whole thing real? What happens when you die? That's one of my doubts. It's like, wait, really? I mean, this, when you die, is this really going to all happen? I mean, is Jesus really going to come? When I was a new believer, probably like many of you, and I heard about the rapture and Jesus could come at any time. Man, that's all I was talking about for like three years. He is coming yesterday. And then five years go by, ten years, wait, wow, he didn't come yesterday. I might have to wait another 20, 30 years waiting on God. I still got to trust his word. My thinking was wrong. My expectations were wrong. I need to be corrected by scripture. Supernatural truth, divine revelation. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He quotes from Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, very specifically. And he's correcting John's thinking. And he says, go and tell John simply these things. These are the things I do. I am fulfilling the requirements that the Messiah is called to do with respect to preaching the gospel and doing these miracles. And John, you don't get to see it. That's okay. You still need to believe it. That's what's powerful. What did Jesus do to alleviate John's spiritual doubts? Did John, another way to say it is, did John need evidence or proof to help dispel his doubt? Did he need evidence and proof? We as Christians, do we need evidence and proof to dispel our doubts? That's actually a very controversial question among Christians. I'll ask it again. Do Christians, do strong Christians, need evidence and proof to get rid of, to overcome our doubts about spiritual matters? The answer absolutely is yes. Because that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus gave John the Baptist truth. He gave, the, he gave John the Baptist, here's the evidence. That's what he gave him. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof. Quit thinking that way. Think on true things, Philippians 4. And so no doubt the messengers maybe went back, ministered to John, the preached word of God. Jesus didn't go and perform a miracle for him. Jesus didn't send him a rock of archaeology. Oh, by the way, this is from uh, the book of Judges, and the Hittites are real, John, so you can believe in the gospel. Even all the critics say the Hittites weren't real. Check this rock out. No. All he gave him was a verbal word of Scripture. That was evidence. That was proof. And that was sufficient. And that's all we need when we have doubts about spiritual truth. We need to hear the Word of God. We need to be reminded of it. This is the evidence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the King James Version a couple others get it right. They say that faith is the substance, hypostasis, the substance and also the evidence of things not seen. Faith. 
And what he's talking about is the faith, scriptural, biblical truth, Romans 10, 17. That faith comes by hearing a word, a truth, a spiritual proposition about Christ. Faith comes from God. Faith comes from divine revelation. Faith only comes through special revelation and the Bible, God's truth. This is it. You can't get spiritual truth anywhere else. Not from a rock, not from a philosopher, not from archaeology, not from human man-made apologetics. From the Bible and only the Bible. The Word of God, the living Word of God, right here. And God honors that with the Spirit as He lives in you. And He uses the living Word of God to work on your mind, to correct your thinking, to encourage you, to illuminate your understanding, to encourage your faith in Almighty God and all of His promises. That's how you overcome <laughs> doubt. And it's the only way you overcome doubt. You know, bottom line, if I had to summarize this, and that's the next last verse, verse 23. How do you overcome doubt? It's by the evidence and the proof of what God has already revealed in His Word in conjunction with the Spirit of God, and then you hear it and you believe it, and you act on it. And there's a promise from Christ Himself if you do that. Okay, doubter. Okay, doubter, John. Why did Luke include this story in his long book, his treatise? Because Mark doesn't include this doubting scene of John the Baptist. John doesn't include this doubting scene. Who's he writing to? Theophilus, the guy that Luke's been interacting with, and Theophilus was on the fence. He was doubting. So in other words, Luke's saying, you know what, Theophilus, you're not the only one who's ever doubted. As a matter of fact, the greatest man of God in the history of the world doubted, and not just a little bit, seriously questioned the very identity and mission of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And Jesus answered himself, and it was a simple answer. He answered with the truth of the word of God. That is the answer. And if you believe God at his word, as you're exposed to it, crying out to him, asking him to help you, Jesus gives you a promise. Macarius, blessed is the one who does not take offense or stumble about me. Blessed is the one who doesn't get confused about my identity and who I am and what I came to do. A positive way of saying it is Jesus says, you know, you're going to be blessed if you have a proper view of Jesus, if you trust in him, if you stay informed about who Jesus really is in keeping with Scripture, and you always keep your thinking in tune with Scripture and aligned with Scripture, submissive to him, dependent upon the Spirit, you will have a continual blanket of blessing and protection of security in your life. The more you meditate on truth, the more you know Jesus Christ, for who he truly is, the more, get this, the more stable your thinking will be. And as a result, the more stable your feelings and emotions will be. They will follow. So with that, let's go to our great God and ask him for his help through the Holy Spirit to really encourage us in all of these principles and promises that he has made known to us through his word. Father, we thank you for for our time today to be with the saints on the Lord's day, to remember you, to make you the priority. Thank you for the gospel of Luke that highlights the things we need to know, the priorities in life, and that is the matchless Savior, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Thank you for this simple demonstration of the God-man caring about believers, caring and knowing that they have doubts, like us, because we're so frail and susceptible. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved John the Baptist, ministered to him, gave him your truth. Thank you for giving us the spirit 
to use the truth of God to help our thinking be correct. Because we know that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Thank you for that promise that comes only through knowing you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.